All right, Jesse, the twist last week was extremely unexpected and exciting. What's the story this week? When a mother of four goes missing the day after Christmas in 2013, the authorities take a good hard look at her soon-to-be ex-husband and her new boyfriend. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about dirtbags, romance, drags, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Thank you to everyone who does that for us every week. We love you. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, head on over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. This week, as usual, we are just really, 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 really excited to shout out an amazing new set of patrons. It's always exciting to have you guys come and join us. Kathy M., Nikki W., and Julie H., Katie C., Danielle F., and Lindsay, Whitney B., Sarah B., and Elizabeth T., and last but not least, Taylor T., Thank you guys, everyone, for your support. I have an exciting announcement. Taylor T., your name reminded me of this because my first ever nephew, Nibbling, because it's of any on either side of our family, Rowan was born yesterday as we're recording this. Yesterday also happens to be Taylor Swift's birthday. So Rowan was born on Taylor Swift's birthday. I'm sure a lot of people are very excited about that. Yes, it's now on its Rowan Prey's birthday, of course. Yes. <laughs> Congratulations to my brother and my beautiful sister-in-law, Anya. I'm just so excited. I can't wait to meet him. As you guys can tell, my voice is getting a little bit better, but I got this cold for my kids, obviously, so I am very patiently waiting until everyone in our home is healthy to meet the wee little bub. Yeah, he's so little. He's so little. We have a two-and-a-half-year-old, and now I... They look like gigantic. They're just huge. They're like huge Godzillas now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, stay away from the babies. Stay away from the babies. So we <laughs> hope that you guys will be around. Next week, we have one more episode before the end of the year, before it's New Year's. We will be doing our Patreon happy hour. We're going to do like a Christmas holiday come down where we talk about drama and the incredible... HBO Max documentary series about the love has won Mother God cult. Amy Carlson. Yes. Andy and I were riveted. I watched it three times. (laughs) (laughs) I might need to watch it one more time before we discuss it. Yeah. Whether you're on Patreon or not, you guys should check it out and DM us because my mind is still blown. Yeah, it's wild. All of that being said, I think we should get into today's holiday timing related true crime. Okay. 26-year-old Melissa Souders was having a bittersweet Christmas in Houston, Texas in 2013. Her mother, Sonia Newsom, had prepared an incredible feast for the big holiday as well. This was something that her family did every year. And every year there was just a ton of food. They prepared ham and turkey and peanut butter cookies. And there was a lot of family traditions, tons of people running around 
one of the cousins described it as just presents all the way up the tree, just piled high. Big, big family, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, everyone would come from near and far to be together for Christmas. You can probably imagine just the noise of this get-together, the tinkling of glasses and silverware. There's this constant hum of conversation punctuated by shrieks of laughter and yelling from all the kids. But four children were missing from that celebration, and it made Grandmother Sonia and Mother Melissa's hearts ache. Melissa was entangled in a bitter divorce from her soon-to-be ex-husband, Matthew Souders. The couple had begun dating in high school, and they had gotten married when Melissa was only 16 years old. Whoa. They had four beautiful baby girls in quick succession, and they now ranged in age from only 18 months old to eight years old. Wow. The girls were spending Christmas with Matthew and his family. Melissa felt a deep pang of longing. She had never spent a single holiday, especially Christmas, away from her children. Her mother was none too pleased not to see her grandbabies either. But Melissa knew that one day of hardship would be worth getting the divorce. She would see her youngest baby the next day, and soon she would be legally free from a horrible marriage that had long since gone sour. Melissa was embarking on a new beginning, one that included a new apartment, a new car, and a new love. She held the hand of her new beau, Jason Sanford, who wasn't exactly a stranger to the family. Turns out that Jason had grown up with Melissa as well as her siblings and cousins. So they had all known him since they were children. And in fact, there had been some sort of grade school romance when it's before you're really obviously dating somebody. But you have that fifth grade boyfriend. Yeah, that was him. This was him. That was it for her. So this childhood fondness for one another had blossomed into something much deeper at this point that they're dating. Next Christmas, she was very confident that Jason would still be standing next to her. And next Christmas, she was hoping to be holding all of her children in her arms. Yeah. Melissa and her family had no way of knowing that her dreams for the next year would be dashed the very next day. Because on December 26, 2013, Melissa would disappear, seemingly into thin air. The ensuing investigation would reveal a volatile love triangle and dangerous secrets being kept by all parties. In the end, it would take the courage of two very brave witnesses coming forward, the incredible search efforts of Texas's AccuSearch, as well as the dedicated detectives of the Houston PD to bring Melissa's killer to justice. So I discovered this case while watching an Oxygen show that I believe I've mentioned in the past called Homicide for the Holidays. Yes, you have mentioned this. I have, yes. And there's a lot of really interesting and I feel like lesser known cases because I sometimes see the same, especially holiday cases, trotted out this time of year. And um, this is one that I wasn't very familiar with. So this is uh, season five, episode four. And then I used just a whole cripe ton of articles and other videos like on True Crime Daily. They had an article and a video about this as well. But I will put all of that in the show notes because it's just too many to list. And if I quote anyone directly, any of these journalists that have covered this case, I will let you know when we get to it. So let's get back into it with Melissa and Matthew. So they met in high school when Melissa was 16 years old and Matthew was 18. 
It was reportedly a very hot and heavy teenage relationship, which sounds like most teenage relationships. I feel like very passionate, very new. And Melissa was particularly head over heels for Matthew, it seems. Matthew came from a very loving family. He and his twin sister, Megan, had been born in Nicaragua, and they were members of the Mosquito Nation, a people indigenous to Central America. Cool. Yep. And Matthew's father, his biological father, had been a soldier and apparently sometime very early on in the twins' lives when they were still just little babies, their biological parents had been unable to care for them. So they had been left at a military hospital. Whoa. Fortunately for Matthew and Megan, within only days, Matthew's parents, the Souders, arrived in Nicaragua and adopted the babies. Okay. They were reportedly very underweight, very sick when they brought them home. And it sounds like these were very lovely people that cared for the twins around the clock until they were able to be big and strong. They also had two other sisters, I believe, and I think that they may have both also been adopted from different places, but I'm not entirely sure because I was basing this off of their grandmother's like obituary, which I found online. So I know that they had four siblings total and they may have all been adopted as well. Okay, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so big people with big hearts. The father, David Souders, worked for the Houston Chronicle, which is the largest newspaper a media outlet in the area, and he was very well-respected. So this is a nice family to end up with, and I think that Melissa thought so as well. There was definitely an attraction to Matthew, but this also very nice, solid unit. Her parents were also very happily married for many years as well. When Melissa got pregnant at 16 years old, she and Matthew wanted to get married before the baby's arrival. Yeah, okay, so she got pregnant first. She got pregnant first. First came the pregnant belly, then came the marriage. And at that point, Jimmy and Sonia Newsom, her parents, did sign off on the marriage because she was underage. But they said that she was very determined to get married. She felt like it was something that she really wanted to do before having the baby. And I think that we've talked about this in the past I think that having a child is the greatest commitment you can ever make in life and to another person. So while getting married at 16 sounds absolutely nuts, I can see that it feels like kind of like <laughs> less important than having a baby with somebody. Yes. Yeah. At that time. And as far as like the family's reception of this union, it was I believe that there was an obvious awareness that this was going to be difficult, that obviously being a teenage parent is a very difficult thing to do. But I think that both families very much embraced the baby as a blessing. And Melissa and Matthew were very blessed in that department. Over the next nine years of marriage, they would go on to have three more children, all girls, so four daughters. Yeah. Wow. Our neighbors have three daughters, and I can't imagine there being another one running around. It's crazy. I mean, you got to have like a, a sports team or a girl band at that point. Yeah. I have two children and I really thought that I wanted three for a very long time. And I had Gus and I was like, okay, no. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> this is good for our family. So they had these four beautiful kids and there's pictures of them online. I don't think I'm going to use them on the Instagram because I always feel like a little weird about using children's pictures when they're not involved in their parents' situation. But if you go to Melissa's like online memorial, these girls are just adorable and they look happy. And I think that they were happy. The problem was the marriage was not. 
the marriage was troubled. And it's one of those things where this might have just petered out, this relationship. This would have been totally, you know, a high school sweetheart situation or we dated for a year and it didn't work out. But they got pregnant and then they were married and then they started growing and changing. And I think everyone changes a lot between 16 and 26 or 18 and 28. Yes. You're like a totally different person. So they started growing apart. I also think that there was an incredible amount of stress. I know that Melissa was very particularly extremely stressed out about having four such small children. I mean, it's stressful. It's exhausting. It sounds like they also were always working jobs that were very paycheck to paycheck, like in the food service industry. It was very hard with them being so young and having so many children to really get ahead essentially. It's impossible, near to impossible, especially if you're just working standard jobs without a degree. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, and that's why. So this is like a lot of stress for young people who are growing and changing. And to add another horrible layer onto this, according to Melissa's friends, Melissa also alleged that Matthew was very abusive and controlling. She wanted out of the marriage, ultimately before the marriage had started to end, but she was afraid of Matthew's reaction. So towards the middle and end of 2013, a separation seemed imminent. And in the fall, I believe both parties were dating other people and Melissa had moved out of the apartment that they had been sharing at that point. And Matthew filed for divorce in October. Okay. So at that time, Melissa was working at Taco Bell as a manager, and she did not have the funds or childcare support to gain sole physical custody of the girls. So the physical custody was granted to Matthew, and she had visitation. And I'm not even really entirely sure what Matthew was doing for work at this point, but it seemed that the reason why Matthew got custody was because the the children were primarily staying with his parents. Okay. So the lovely couple who had adopted all these children, which I think Matthew had three sisters. So these having four girls in the house was probably not a huge departure for them. So that was my understanding was that Matthew was getting a lot of support from his family and very specifically his parents. And that was why he ended up technically getting custody. But of course, this was something that she wanted to work on and and stabilize her financial situation and make sure she had a good home for them to live in so that the custody could at least in the minimum be more like 50-50 or even someday she could have the majority custody. Okay. Well, sometime during this messy separation, Melissa reconnected with 26-year-old Jason Sanford. and. Jason and Melissa got very serious very fast. By Christmas, they were living in an apartment together and had purchased a car together. An apartment that had room for the girls or no? I believe it had room for the girls. It was, they were renting, sorry, they were renting the apartment. And I'm not sure, I think that this was a place that they could go and visit. I don't think this was like a permanent, like there's a bedroom for everyone type of situation. Got it, okay. So she's moving on with her life with Jason. And she's really looking very quickly to a future with this man. Now, there were some people in her life, in her family, who even said, you are just getting out of a divorce. This is crazy. You're not even legally 
divorce yet. Do not jump into another serious relationship. But for the most part, I would say that they noticed that she was really happy and glowing for the first time in a long time. Both of her parents speak on the show about how she was very hopeful and she was very happy and they had not seen that version of her in a long time. So as much as I think people are a little concerned at the speed in which her new relationship is moving and and wanting her to take care of things as far as getting her kids back and everything, they were also hopeful that maybe this relationship could be a grounding force and give her some measure of joy going forward as well. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if she was in what she was explaining was a semi-abusive relationship, like they're going to want her to be happy. Yes. I mean, I can only speculate about this, but given that Melissa has more limited means and a limited education and job opportunities, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised because I know Jason was gainfully employed if she thinks like, oh, having a partner who also is working towards a common goal of being a family with my children would seem financially wise. I can see how that would be a a thought process. Obviously, all of us are going, oh, no, girl, like, get yourself together, get yourself right, get your kids back. But like, yeah, at the same time, I can think of when you're living like that financially, how it would seem like it could be more security or something if you have a partner. And just they're not alone, you know? Yeah. I don't think she's never been alone. She went from her parents' house to living with his parents, I think, when they were first married, to finally getting their own apartment. So she has never lived alone in her entire life. Yeah. Matthew, her estranged ex, was less than thrilled with her new relationship. According to Melissa's best friend, Matthew was doing everything he could to control her. He was obsessively trying to get her back. It was alleged that he even tried to kidnap her from Taco Bell one night when she was leaving work. Oh, my God. Meanwhile, on the other side, Matthew claimed that Jason, his wife's new boyfriend, had been harassing him. He called the police on two different occasions, citing that Jason was harassing him with incessant phone calls and threatening not only his life, but the lives of his children. What? Which seems insane to me because on one hand we have... He's supposed to be reportedly like wanting to be with Melissa and create this family with her. And then on Matthew's side, he's saying he doesn't want anything to do with our family. In fact, he's threatening their lives as well as mine. Yes, so scary. Very scary. And we don't know who is telling the truth here. Like what's really going on? So as you can imagine, things were looking pretty gnarly and heavy going into the holiday season, which is why Melissa wasn't really putting up Like, she wasn't really putting up a huge fight as far as, like, I want to see them on Christmas. I'm going to come over to your parents' house. I'm going to do this. This is our, like, she was kind of like, let's let this ride until the divorce is finalized and a visitation schedule is legalized. And I'm just going to be happy with what I can get until that point. She really, according to friends, did not want to be around Matthew. However, when Christmas happened, she was pretty sad, I think, as most parents would be when they don't get to see their children on such a major holiday, especially about the baby who's only a year and a half years old. Yeah, 18 months. 
18 months, I know. And that's really difficult. So she asked Matthew if they could make an arrangement so that she could see her children or even just see the baby or have some sort of visitation the day after Christmas. So he said yes. And the day after Christmas, Melissa dropped Jason off at work because they shared a singular car that they had co-purchased together. And she ended up speaking to him throughout the rest of the morning. He was working and he said that she was talking to him up until just about 11 a.m. when she was supposed to meet Matthew in a McDonald's in North Houston. At that point, she said, oh, he's here. I got to go. And she hung up on him. And then Jason didn't hear from her for the rest of the day. Hours and hours later, he is frantically trying to reach her because she was supposed to pick him back up from work. And she's not answering the phone. She's not answering texts. He's calling now her friends and family, and no one has heard from her. This is very alarming. Right around 7 p.m., I think it was maybe just a little after 7 p.m. on the 26th, the day after Christmas, Jason went to the Harris County Sheriff's Office and he filed a police report. By now, Melissa was supposed to be at Taco Bell for her evening shift. So I think that it, she was supposed to like go pick up Jason, bring him home, and then like maybe he was going to drop her off at Taco Bell or something. But they had a whole routine planned. So she's also not at Taco Bell. She's not at work. Her employer and her family and Jason all said that this was not typical. She's not somebody to just fall off the radar. Yeah, it's kind of hard to do when you have four kids. Yeah, absolutely. So naturally, the first call went out to Matthew because he was allegedly the last person that saw her. So he said, yes, I absolutely saw her. We were supposed to meet in the McDonald's. And then he got either a call or a text from her saying basically she had to use the bathroom and she didn't want to use the restroom in the McDonald's. And their old apartment, which he was living in by himself at this point, was close by this McDonald's. So he said that she asked if she could come over and use the restroom there and see the baby there. He said at that point, she stayed for 30 minutes and then she left on foot. So they go, okay, we're going to check this all out, of course. And can you just come down to the station so we can just ask you some more questions? Because this was on the phone. He says, absolutely, sure thing. At the same time that they're asking Matthew to come down, they go to the McDonald's to pull the security camera footage after yeah, everyone has reported this is where she was supposed to be at 11. And there is security camera footage of Melissa walking into the McDonald's. And it looks like she's on her phone. At some point, she's looking down at her phone. She's there for a couple minutes. And then she leaves. So this is very in line with both Jason and Matthew's stories at this point. The police were also fielding calls and visits from Melissa's concerned loved ones. Obviously, her mother, Sonia, was part of this contingent of people who just really were concerned about her at that point. And she went down to the station and she said that she had some important information that they needed to know. And that was that it was not just... Melissa's life that was on the line. If something had happened to Melissa, that means something had also happened to Melissa's unborn baby. No. Melissa was pregnant. No. 
So Melissa had just shared their news with, I think, just her mom and some very, very close friends. I don't even know if her sisters knew at that point. She was obviously keeping it very private because she was still getting divorced from Matthew. So she told her mom that she was somewhere between six weeks and two months pregnant and that the baby was Jason's. Okay. So the investigators now know that it looks like there's some sort of love triangle going on here. Melissa's married, though she was getting a divorce, but she is already allegedly pregnant with her new boyfriend. And living with him. And living with him. But if it's two months, then they, it sounds like he hadn't even really filed for a divorce yet. It's a very complicated timeline at this point. So let's look at both of these guys, the cops say, essentially. Let's look and see if they have any priors. And Matthew did have some low-level stuff on his record. He was caught driving with suspended license. There was a trespassing charge, but it looked like that happened when he was, like, 18 or 19 or something. So that could be from, yeah. Yeah, any, like anything that teenagers get up to. From toilet papering houses. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they also note at this time, though, that Matthew has called the police twice which I mentioned earlier, accusing Jason of harassment via the phone and threatening his life. And does he have any records of that? There's records of the complaints, yes. And none of the calls from Jason? No, he didn't record any of these calls. So this is just his word. So looking over at Jason, they see that he is a different story. Jason has a violent background and seems quick to temper. He has been picked up several times for fighting. And only three months before Melissa's disappearance, he was arrested for assault. Huh. So this gets even more twisted because who was Jason assaulting? Well, Jason had been arrested after he was found beating up his best male friend. Why was he doing this? Because Jason's victim, his now former best friend, I'm guessing, had allegedly been having an affair with Jason's wife. That's right. Jason Sanford is married. And only oh three, <laughs> three months earlier, he was kicking the shit out of some guy because his wife was cheating on him with that guy. Guys, Jason says that he's getting a divorce as well. And that Melissa totally knows about it. They're in a similar situation. I don't know if anything was really legally separated at this point or even filed. So he's saying he's getting a divorce. But as of the moment that they're investigating him, he is still legally wed. They called up Jason's wife and she didn't know anything about Melissa. Now, it was obvious that they were having marital problems, clearly. Yeah, yeah. And I do believe that she was obviously aware that Jason had moved out because I think he was truly... I don't know if I should call it monogamous. I don't really know what was going on in all of these relationships, but I do know that it seemed like he was mostly living with Melissa at this point. It wasn't like there was a hidden love nest, I don't think. <laughs> However, the wife did not know that he was very serious with Melissa. Yeah, and possibly about to have a baby with someone else. She had no idea. Wow. Did they have any kids together? Everywhere I read did not have any information on that because I think that Jason's wife was looked into very briefly for obvious reasons, and 
she was cleared very quickly. It's kind of like her side of it is clear. Yeah. I also did not have a book on this case, so I don't have like the Anne Rule level of like family trees involved with all of the people <laughs> that are in this, unfortunately, because I really do love having all of the information. So obviously this is not looking good for Jason. No, it's definitely not. It's just getting worse because Matthew went down to the station and he said that the reason why maybe Jason was harassing him was because Melissa was still sexually involved with Matthew as well. So Matthew said, yes, we're getting a divorce, but we've been together for so long. And sometimes when she's just over or we're hanging out with the kids, something happens. And the last time it happened, I asked her if Jason, the guy she's living with, knows that we're still hooking up. And she said no. So he's like, I don't know if he knows. I don't know if he found out that we're still sleeping together. He's like, I know that this guy is dangerous. I know that he has harassed me, but I don't, I don't know anything else. So at this point, the police are thinking, did Jason potentially discover that the baby wasn't his and do something to Melissa? Was he maybe reconciling with his wife and he needed to get rid of Melissa because she's carrying his baby? Yeah. There's also the other side of this, which is if Matthew is as controlling and abusive as she claimed he was, did he discover that she was pregnant with Jason's baby and flip out and kill her? There's just so many ways that this could go and so many motivations when you have a very emotionally fraught love triangle, a baby on the way, and one guy that definitely has a record and another guy that allegedly has some issues. With the abuse with Matthew and Melissa, was that ever reported or did the kids ever see it? Or was it, did she just tell Jason or what was the situation or did her family know too? I think on one of the shows that I watched, her sisters or cousins said something about it. Her best friend reported on it. But as far as I know, I do not know if it was witnessed by other people or they were just repeating what she said to them. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to not believe a best friend because you tell a best friend everything. You would even tell a best friend something that you might not like want to say as well. But And you have to remember too, I mean, Melissa's family seems lovely, but I think that Matthew came from a very well-respected family. And it also didn't strike me as Melissa was the type that would report this, which happens in a lot of cases. So we don't know. That's why I'm saying allegedly, because we don't know exactly. We don't have police reports on this. So that's kind of where we're at with this. And this is where the police are, too, because they know the reality. It's great if you have police reports that will help in a case, obviously. But like, it doesn't mean that there wasn't abuse happening. Of course. Yeah. So they now need to talk to Jason. Now we have to remember Jason was the one who filed the missing persons report. So is he genuinely concerned or is this him covering his ass? Yeah, I would say the latter. So he, he goes down there. He said, yep, I'm married, but she knew all about it. There's camera of him doing this, like a video of his interrogation. And he's got like more of a like a country kind of like, I don't want to say like rednecky, but like there's like a, a very like specific like accent that he's using. And, and he's just like, a different type of guy than 
Matthew, you can see the way they both deal with the police and stuff. He's very helpful, but he says, quote, about this fight. He was my best friend for 14 years. I found out he was sleeping with my wife and I got mad at him and we got into a little tussle in the street. (laughs) This is how he puts this getting arrested for assault is a little tussle in the street. As you guys know from the stories on our show, the world gives you enough to worry about without having to worry about BO as well. That's why we're so excited to tell you about Lumi. It's a whole body deodorant. It's clinically proven to control odor everywhere. And they do mean everywhere for a full 72 hours. You know it. As an OBGYN, Lumi's founder, Dr. Shannon Klinkman, met thousands of women concerned with odor below the belt. Through clinical testing, she found that the real culprit wasn't our wonderful lady bits, but bacteria on the skin. So she created Lumi, a skin-safe, aluminum-free deodorant that actually works and works everywhere, with over 150,000 five-star reviews to prove it. Yeah, absolutely. I'm obsessed with Lumi. I love all of their products. I find it so great when I go to the gym and I don't have to worry about it at all. I also am somebody who gets the boob sweats really bad. Yeah. So it's nice to have an all-over deodorant up here, down there, in there, just all over. Yeah, and know that it's safe for everywhere too. I think With traveling and doing red eyes, which is honestly when I'm by myself without the kiddo, the only flight to do to New York, because otherwise you lose an entire day, getting off the flight and being able to go to the restroom and have the little travel wipes are the best ever. Oh, the wipes are so clutch. If you want to check Luby out, their start pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, and two free products of your choice like the mini body wash and the deodorant wipes we were just raving about, as well as free shipping. And as a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code LOVEMURDER at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code LOVEMURDER. Andy, this is one of the most sparkling, wonderful, beautiful, happy times of the year. But it can also cause a lot of stress and especially a lot of financial stress. Absolutely. There are so many people out there working incredibly hard but still finding themselves with money challenges simply because of the way paychecks are distributed. Absolutely. And life and Christmas does not happen biweekly. So why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earnin. Earnin is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. This seems like one of those duh products that when you hear about it for the first time, it's just so clear how important and valuable it is. Seriously, life is absolutely difficult enough without having to worry about the timing of when your paycheck is going to land. And the holidays should be a time of excitement, not money worries. Make Earnin part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type in Love Murder under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Love Murder under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. 
Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. So Jason knew that Melissa was expecting a baby, and he absolutely believed that it was his. They were planning and excited for this baby. He said, quote, that was my angel. I loved her. I would give everything for her. So the past tense is always alarming when somebody's just missing. Uh, yeah. But I got to say, I got a big but here. Jason was thoroughly alibied. He was 100% at work all day with lots of other witnesses. His boss even brought in his timesheet down to the station and said he was with me all day and I can prove it. Yeah, but that doesn't mean that he didn't get someone else to do something. Maybe. But he seemed genuinely helpful. So at this point, he's saying, if you want me to do a lie detector test, I'll do a lie detector test, whatever you need me to do. He handed over his phone and they went through it. They did not find anything that was alarming to them. He seemed, at least to the authorities at this point, to be very concerned about Melissa and very willing to help in any way that he could have. Okay, good. Yes. So this interrogation was happening on the 27th. This is the day after Melissa went missing. And it was this same day that they've had conversations with both Matthew and Jason that the police got a call from a patrol officer. So it's basically like dispatch and then a patrol officer, I believe. And this would be the tip that would break the whole case open. Less than 24 hours after Melissa was reported missing, 911 received a bizarre phone call. It was from a woman who said that she was Matthew Souter's neighbor, and she wanted to make an anonymous report. Hmm. So I saw a couple different reports. One said that it was his neighbor. Another report said that it was a friend of Melissa's. But either way, I could see it going both ways because she lived in that apartment before... She moved out. Yeah. So she might have made friends with a neighbor. So therefore, it's a friend of Melissa's and the neighbor. Totally. I love nosy neighbors. Nosy neighbors are the MVPs of true crime stories. They really are. They are. And like the MVPs of every neighborhood. And people like complain <laughs> about it. But it's like, no, that nosy neighbor is going to save your ass one day. Absolutely. They also just don't do bad shit. Yeah. I love my nosy neighbor. Do they tell you, like, if your Airbnb guests are doing something screwed up? Well, she'll tell me when I get back because she's, like, 95. <laughs> <laughs> but her name's Elvira. She's amazing. She oh sits my on gosh. her porch all day. Oh, I love that. Elvira's a hero. And so is this woman. She said that she went over to Matthew's apartment uninvited. So she's like, just stopping by, right? <laughs> as a nosy neighbor is wont to do. She's like grabbing some random item in her house and being like, I, I just remembered I had to bring this to you. Yeah. Here's your can opener. Exactly. Didn't I borrow this from you? So she said she went over there uninvited. And now this is the part where it gets really scary. She said that he opened the door just a little bit. It was obvious that he did not want her to come into the apartment. He didn't want her to see what was going on in the apartment. And he was acting very evasive, very cagey, and disgruntled that she was there. Not Nick cagey, though. Just cagey. Not Nick cagey. Just cagey. She said that, and I don't know if this is why she went over there, but she said that the baby was the only one home. And remember, that was the whole point of this visit. Yeah. This is happening that afternoon. So this is early that afternoon. Because she didn't report it until the next night, but she's saying this was yesterday. 
And she said the baby was crying. The baby was screaming. And she said, what's wrong with the baby? What's going on? And he's like, she's just upset. Just get out of here, essentially. Hmm. Like, I'll calm her down. You get out of here. And she was trying to look in the apartment. You guys, like, can't see me. But right now I'm, like, moving my head. Peeking. Yeah, peeking, nosy neighbor. And she said that she could see in the bedroom, like, through the living room, it was visible to her that she saw two feet, like two feet sticking out. So scary. On the ground. And she said that they were very clearly white female feet. So she believed that they were Melissa's. Now, at the time, she doesn't know what's going on. She's like, something seems weird here. So the reason why she didn't call it in for a whole day was because that's when they announced that Melissa was missing. Yeah. So at that point, it was being publicized. And now she was really scared. The day before, she's trying to, like, wrap her head around what's going on. Is something, like, weird going on? Is somebody just, like, passed out in the place? There was no sign of blood. He didn't have anything, like, blood on him or anything. So it's just, like, the only thing she's got is that there's these two feet. And she even said something like, And a crying baby. And a crying baby. Like, whose feet are that? Is it? Is there some woman laying in there, basically? That's so weird. And he was like, it's none of your business. And he slammed the door in her face. (laughs) It's not a good reaction. No. So she was already thinking that something felt very deeply wrong. And then by the time she saw the news that Melissa, who she had felt friendly with, was missing, now she knew. So she called them as soon as she found out about the news. And immediately the dispatch got a patrol officer. The patrol officer ended up calling the detectives because I think that he was aware of the ongoing investigation, obviously. And they totally hauled ass down to Matthew's apartment. Unfortunately, over 24 hours had occurred since the sighting. And when they got there, nobody's in the apartment at all. Matthew's not there. There's no sign of anybody. But given the eyewitness and the fear that there could be somebody who is deceased or very gravely injured in the home, they were given permission to break down the door. Good. Because this is a life or death situation. So they break the door down and it's really creepy inside. They have video of them going through this apartment because the electricity had been turned off. Uh. So it's just totally dark. And they're going through with flashlights, which just always feels like a creepy video game or something. Oh, yeah. Like Doom? Yes. And the place is just... It doesn't look good. It doesn't look clean. It doesn't look like this is a place where kids should be living, which is why I'm kind of thinking that they were predominantly spending time at his parents' house. He did tell people, and this was true, that he was moving out. So he's in the process of moving out. It's the end of the month. And I think they were moving back in with his folks, right? Okay. Still, it wasn't like boxes. It's like piles of shit. But like a lot of the furniture is already moved out. It's just kind of eerie. And they go to the bedroom because this is where the witness said that they saw the feet, but they cannot find, there's no no sign of foul play. There's no feet there. There's no body. There's no blood. Even with uh, the light? Even with the light, there's just nothing. And even though the place is kind of a mess, there's nothing that would indicate a big struggle. Okay. Or any sort of violence. It's kind of like when we talk about how there's There's not evidence of blood, but you could see like somebody sees where like a carpet was cut out or something like that. Yeah. There's nothing like that. There's just nothing. It's just kind of like a not so great apartment that's not very clean. So they're like, shit, 
they're feeling like Matthew is essentially involved in this somehow. He is like moving into more of the number one spot, even though Jason was previously holding that number one spot pretty tightly. But they have nothing against him. So it's just this woman's word. And they're like, did they see something else? Also, there's no signs of violence. So wait, was she there? And she was laying down on the floor for some reason because they don't have any furniture in there. So was she maybe just like laying down on the ground? The woman didn't see him doing anything. She didn't see him with blood on it. Yeah, but he wouldn't open the door. Yeah, it's just a really strange situation. So they ask him to come back down to the station now that they have this information. And they want him to extrapolate on his relationship with her and exactly what was happening in this apartment in the 30 minutes that he alleges that Melissa was in the apartment with him. And he said at this time that he was feeling kind of guilty about them still having sex together. And he alleged that Melissa was the more aggressive one in wanting to be intimate with him. And that she had come over and they had been watching something on TV. He has this like whole spiel about her like inching over on the couch and trying to kiss him and being like, you can't do this anymore because you're going home to that guy. And he doesn't even know about us. And it's just making me feel sick. And so he says that she got upset when he rebuffed her advances and basically said, I'm just such a horrible person. I'm a horrible mother. I'm such an awful wife to you and you keep loving me and I feel horrible that I have like hurt you so much and at that point she wanted to leave so he said that he offered to drive her to her car which was not that far but enough that you would likely give somebody a ride rather than saying go walk 10 minutes you know yeah so he said that he did offer her a ride and she was frustrated with him and said, I don't want anything to do with you. So I'm just going to go out and I'm going to walk to my car. Like, leave me alone. So he said that's how it ended. That would make it very nice for him. Yes. And then they straight up asked him, which is why I think that this witness was so brave, because of course he knows exactly who came to his door. They're like, so your neighbor didn't come over? Your neighbor didn't see anything? Why would she say that? I'm like, <laughs> guys, he knows where she lives. <laughs> like, you really think he killed someone? Why don't you think he would kill his neighbor who he knows where she lives? Why are you blowing the neighbor in here? That is not cool. You are not protecting the source. It's giving desperate. And he's just straight up like, nope, I don't know what you're talking about. They're like, do you know why she would say that? And he's like, nope. And they're like, would you like to take a polygraph for us? And he's like, nope, don't need no poly. I'm going to get cleared. So I'm taking it. Wow. Yeah. So unlike Jason, who is crying and he's like, She's an angel. And he, he still used that past tense, but I'm wondering if he just knew in his heart that something bad had happened to her. I don't know. But it was it was brought up. There was like some comments on YouTube under the True Crime Daily thing being like, did anyone else notice the past tense? And it was oh like, God. everybody noticed the past tense on Jason. But unlike Jason, Matthew absolutely does not want to help or aid them in any way. And now he's obviously probably running a little scared knowing that... The neighbors said something. It doesn't look good when you don't want to help in a disappearance case of the mother of four children that you share with. Yes. And while we totally respect the fact that polygraphs are, can be total bullshit and are inadmissible in court, at the same time, it's like the willingness. The yeah. willingness or lack thereof is sometimes can be an indicator. They have to let him go because they can't hold him for anything right now. 
And the last thing they say to him is, do you have anything else you want to tell us? And he's like, you better just look into that guy, Jason. He just keeps saying, look into that guy, Jason. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the police had finally located the car that Melissa had shared with Jason because it hadn't been at the McDonald's. They didn't know where it was, but this was a pretty distinctive car insofar that it was a 1995 Honda Accord that was all white except for one black door. Okay. So it's going to stand out. Yeah. And so they had had essentially a be on the lookout for her and her car. And a patrol officer had finally spotted it. And it was in, you could describe this as like a truck stop, but it's like very off the beaten path. It is like, instead of parking in a normal parking area of what is a place that's a truck stop and where 18-wheelers go to park and take a nap or whatever they do there, somebody had parked the car way around the parking area and like behind where the 18-wheelers go. And it's kind of like not in a parking spot. It's like, off into like the dirt on the side. Okay. And the way it was kind of dumped there made it seem like somebody was trying to disappear her car. Okay. So they get in there and obviously they have to go through the entire car with a fine tooth comb. However, at first glance, again, there's no blood. There's no huge indications of struggle at this point. So there's just nothing very obvious and they're going to have to get the whole thing processed. So that's going to take some time. But it should be noted that this remote truck stop type area was about seven or eight miles from Matthew's apartment. So it's not far. Yeah. So this is just feeding into their instincts that Matthew is definitely involved with this somehow. So again, they've now talked to him twice. They're thinking... Let's bring him back down. Let's have another conversation with Matthew. We feel like we're getting him on the run. But before they can even do that, before they even ask Matthew to come down again, another call came into 911. And it was a second woman who had something groundbreaking to say about Matthew Souders. Oh, gosh. It's not looking good, babe. No. So this woman, it's hard to listen to the 911 because she's clearly very upset. She doesn't want to be doing this. She's having a very hard time making this call. I don't think anyone wants to get involved in a disappearance slash possible murder. No. And this person is crying and she says she wants to turn somebody in. Okay. They connect her with a detective who immediately goes over there. And this woman explains that she's Matthew Souter's lover. She is his friend with benefits, essentially. Okay. She says that... She had been under the impression that he was completely done with his wife, that they weren't together anymore. But she was aware that he might still have some feelings for her because he seemed very angry and upset about her new relationship. So she says that to start with, but that's not what she's calling about. Obviously. (laughs) What she's calling about, and this woman too wished to remain anonymous, was that he came to her house on the day that Melissa went missing in the evening. And she said that when he pulled up, his truck was covered with fresh mud. And when he came up to her doorstep, he himself was wet and covered with mud up into his chest. She said that she was like, what happened? What's going on here? Why are you in wet clothes? What's going on? And she said that he was extremely emotionally distraught. And that he told her he had done something bad. He had killed Melissa. He told her that? He told her that. Whoa. That's heavy. 
according to this anonymous friends with benefits buddy, he said that he snapped, blacked out, and choked Melissa to death. Then he told her that he placed Melissa's body in a trash bag and then the trash bag with her body inside of it in a big black trash can, like the kind you see like you wheel out to the curb for the trash company to take. And then he put that big black trash can in his pickup truck and drove to Cypress Creek, which was this very large creek we're going to talk about in a little bit that backed up to part of this creek, backed up to where their apartment was. Okay. So Matthew was still in touch with her when she goes to the police. Now this is, I think... A day or two days after she got this information, she just did not know what to do about it. Obviously, she's scared to death. Yeah. And so the police say, is he still talking to you? Do you think he'll talk to you? And she said, yes. And so they gave her a pocket recorder and they asked her to record any in-person conversations that they have together. So scary. Which is so scary. And that's why I really do want to applaud both of these people who wish to remain anonymous the neighbor, and the girlfriend for coming forward because how often do we hear about some sort of accomplice or some person who knew about it who just froze and did nothing because they were scared? It is terrifying. It's terrifying. I mean, that's why these people are so incredible in the story is that they are faced with very significant real bodily harm and they're putting themselves in this situation in order to find justice for Melissa. He would still possibly be free if it wasn't for these people and their bravery. 100%. Absolutely. With this information, they were able to get a search warrant for Matthew's truck. And they're obviously hoping to find blood. They want to find Melissa's phone. They're looking for anything, any evidence that her body had been moved in this vehicle, but no dice. There's mud on it, but that's about it. Could mud, like, totally cover up to, like, any evidence that was there? I mean, I feel like that just makes it so much more messy, right? Yeah, but I think they would have known. And they're also looking, like, in the truck bed and everything. It was just nothing to at least the naked eye, for sure. There's no garbage can anywhere, either. There's no garbage can. He had obviously dumped the garbage can as well. So, again, eyewitnesses but no physical evidence to back it up. So at that point, they're like, we've got to drag Cypress Creek, which is really big. It's called a creek, but it seems like a, more like a river to me because it's 50 yards wide. Wow. 50 yards wide with varying degrees of depth. It can go like 50 feet down, I think. So this is a large river despite its adorable name of Cypress Creek. Yeah. (laughs) And they're a little concerned about this search because all the witness knows is that it's somewhere in Cypress Creek. And they might be looking for a garbage can. They might be looking for a body. They don't know if, like, he weighed the garbage can down. They don't know exactly what's going on. And this is a lot of area to cover. Apparently, this area, too, has a lot of vegetation. It has a lot of, like, forest around it. The banks are hard to get to. Is the water deep or is it really shallow? It's different. So there's some areas where it's super shallow and then there's different areas where it's very deep. This is a place where people go to go fishing. So this is a complicated search. And the authorities were kind of concerned about being able to do this. This is the week between Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. By themselves, it's cold. 
I mean, Houston, Texas doesn't get super duper cold, but it was cold at this time of the year. And this is where EcuSearch came in. Now, I believe we've talked about EcuSearch in a previous episode. It's not hitting me which one. But I do not think at that point we talked about how incredible this organization is and its tragic backstory. Mm -mm, I don't think so either. I was doing some research just for this case. And on the show, they very briefly touch on EcuSearch and how it's this like incredible organization that helps find missing persons. But then I went down like an internet rabbit hole and I found out that there is a Netflix true crime documentary that came out a little bit more than a year ago called Crime Scene, The Texas Killing Fields. Did you see that one? Mm -mm. I didn't see it either. So I wasn't aware of this miniseries, but it's a miniseries about this area of land between League City and Houston, Texas, where I believe 33 victims, female victims, were found dating with being killed anywhere from sometime in the 1970s to I believe the latest victim was killed in 2006. Oh my gosh. Yes. So it has a big Long Island serial killer energy, but in Texas. And they think it was one serial killer? I'm not entirely sure because I haven't seen the documentary. But one of those victims, one of the victims that was recovered from the Texas killing fields was a 16-year-old girl named Laura Miller who went missing in 1984 after she went to a local store to place a payphone call. Her body was discovered 17 months after she went missing. Wow. Her father, Tim Miller, was tireless and just indispensable in that search in not giving up hope of finding his daughter and he decided to use his tragedy to help other families of missing persons. He founded AccuSearch in 2000 with the mission of searching for missing persons after official law enforcement efforts had failed or ended. In the last 23 years, AccuSearch volunteers have worked on 2,200 cases and they have recovered 326 bodies and 428 living people found. What? Who are missing. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And do they specialize in certain areas or all over the U.S.? I think that they, I mean, they're, they're even international. They helped with Kaylee Anthony. They have been part of some bigger cases as well. They started in Texas. So they have a lot of resources probably in Texas, which is, I think the case we talked about them was a Texas case as well. Yeah. But Tim goes on every one of these missions and helps run them. It's just, it makes me like... I mean, what else do you do when your child dies? I know. Like, it's It like just makes me, like, so emotional, though, like, <sighs> that he talks about how um, tragedy and the things that you go through can give you a sort of resilience, and then you can turn that into something for humanity. Like, basically, it puts you through this, like, ringer, and you come out in a way that makes you want to help. And I think that that's why... Like when people say that, like what we do or like when people are like, oh, gosh, I don't know how you do this week after week, reading true crime stories or talking about them to you guys. Some part of me feels like there's always the helpers. There's always the witnesses who are brave enough to come forward. There's always the detectives that are putting their own families on the side to try to fight for justice. And then there's people who went through the worst thing a parent can go through and is using it to help countless other families. I mean, even the journalists and the Anne Rule and the writers as well. Yes. Like mm -hmm. sharing the story and talking about how cases 
become discovered or unfolded all helps with any field in true crime and helps with cases probably being solved. Awareness about, yeah, uh, intimate partner violence and, and everything. So I definitely am in awe of this guy. We'll put a link to AccuSearch um, in case you'd like to make a donation, obviously, in our social media profiles. So sadly, Laura's killer has never truly been brought to justice. But I mean, I don't know what he did in his civilian life before this, but he essentially when there's this one suspect that everyone thinks is the guy that killed Laura and many other people, but no one has ever been really able to pin it on him. He did end up going to jail for manslaughter. But when his house got foreclosed upon, I guess Tim bought the house and went through it and looked for evidence. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so he is convinced that this guy, which I haven't seen the documentary, so I don't know any like everything about this. I only know like the little rabbit internet rabbit hole I went in literally last night before we recorded early this morning. <laughs> but his name is Clyde Hedrick, this guy. We've got a true crime within a, a true crime story right now. We're like <laughs> bubble of the true crime story within the bigger one right now. So he knows it's this guy, Clyde Hedrick. And in 2014, Tim filed a wrongful death suit against this man that he believes is responsible for his daughter's death, as well as many others. Because as we know, a lot of times when they file the civil case, some new evidence can come up and it can push authorities to open a criminal investigation or look into pursuing a case there. Well, just last year, Tim was awarded a $24 million judgment. And Clyde Hedrick was found civilly liable for Laura's murder. Now, Tim will not see a penny of that money because this guy has zero money. He has nothing. But that obviously is not the point. Tim Miller said, I filed the wrongful death suit to let Clyde Hedrick know that, Clyde, I'm still here. I'm still here and I'm not going to quit until the day I die. I want to let Clyde know that. I know what you did to my daughter, and I'm not going to let you rest until we have you where you need to be for the rest of your life. Unbelievable. Oh, my gosh. This is making me so emotional, guys. <laughs> Gotta take a moment. Verklempt over here. <laughs> okay, guys, we just edited that, but it took me like a full three minutes to get myself together. back in line. And, yeah, together and back in the – back in today's episode. So we are back in Houston in – the days right after Christmas, looking for Melissa. Houston PD turned to AccuSearch. So they have a ton of volunteers out there. They're on ATVs. They have people on horses going through the river and on the river banks. They have boats out there with people with poles, as well as sonar systems. I mean, this was a big search with a lot of manpower. They're doing everything they can. The search began on December 29th, and they were going from dawn till dusk searching for Melissa. Jason Sanford was out there as well. Yeah, I'm sure he joined he the volunteers. Yeah, so there's like news footage of him speaking to the cameras, and he still seems just really bewildered. It's like he's not, he doesn't know what to do, and he doesn't really know how this all happened. Melissa's mom, her sister, and her cousin speak out on the Homicide for the Holidays show and just talk about how hard this was on the family and how they would get up every day and go to the bridge and just watch the search, how the sister ended up quitting her job because she just emotionally could not handle being anywhere else other than like with her family looking and thinking about where she could be. And they're praying, but it's almost like the chance of Melissa being found alive was so little at that point that it's almost like you don't know what you're praying for 
you're praying that they're found alive. Of course, yeah. But then it seems like there's like a 50% chance if you found. Yes, which is incredible. But once you get over that percentage, then it's having some form of closure. Yes. And every day that goes by, it's looking less and less likely. So on day three, this was New Year's Eve, the 31st, they found a trash can that max matches the description that the witness had given them. So they're hopeful. You know, obviously they also wish that she was found alive, but they're hopeful that they could maybe prosecute Matthew if they do find a body. But there was no body in the trash can. At that point, they were 100% convinced that he was the killer of Melissa. Was he aware of these searches happening? Yes, he's very aware. He had hired a defense attorney at this point. And the investigators are very frustrated. They're also not having any sort of celebration. They're not with their families for this time period. It's New Year's Eve. They were hoping for a win. And they know how hard it is to convict without a body. And right now they don't have any physical evidence tying Matthew to Melissa's murder. And just that same day that they find the empty garbage can, they get another call from Matthew's lover. So she had something. She was brave enough to tape their conversation and she handed the tape over to the investigators. And she had talked at length with Matthew about the investigation. She is like... Just telling him, like, do you know what they're doing? Did you see it? Are you watching it? Are you worried about it? Like, the same question you just asked me. And he said that he had spoken to a defense attorney whom he had hired and that he felt like he wasn't going to be in any trouble. He has a great case. He seemed confident. He has a great case. Yeah, that's essentially what he's saying. He's like, without a body, they're not going to be able to get me. And he felt very confident that they were not going to find Melissa. He said, quote, and you can hear this on the tape, Right now, they haven't found her, and I doubt they're going to find her. (sighs) At that point, the lover slash informant tried to convince him to turn himself in, which he was like, no. And then she's like, well, just tip it in. Essentially, leave an anonymous tip about the location of Melissa's body. He's like, you should just, she goes, you should just tell them, even if it's anonymous, where she could be found, because don't you think she should have a proper burial? So she is doing the work to try to, get him to say what he needs to say on this, but also to even convince him. She's like, they'll probably give you a deal. You need to give her a proper burial. Don't you think you need to do that? And he says, you can hear one thing say, I'll think about it, which means no, he's not going to do that. The investigators who listened to the tape also said on the show that it's clear that he thought he was smarter than them, that he thought that all of the people looking for Melissa were stupid, that they were never going to find her that he was in a good position and he thought that he was going to get away with this, essentially. But you're not because you keep running your mouth. He also allegedly told more than one person that he had killed Melissa, so it's not just his lover, but he said that he had killed her in self-defense after she pointed a gun at him. There's no evidence this is even remotely true, obviously. They said that they even brought him in and asked him because when they heard that, they were like, do you want to come in and talk to us? Like, Did Melissa do anything to you that would make you feel like you were in danger for your life? And he was like, no, no, absolutely not. So they felt like they were really on the right track, but the search had been going on for a week at this point. New Year's Day had come and gone. It is now January 2nd, 2014, and it's getting to a point where EcuSearch has a lot of other cases. The police have a lot of other cases. 
there was going to have to be less volunteers. Every day there's going to be less volunteers. It starts to feel a little less hopeful as this stretches on. Of course, yeah. And so at that point, they had been going into places that had easy access areas for cars, like where you would, like a main person would go in because of the mud on the truck and everything. And where they thought it would be most reasonable, that would be the easiest dumping sites. And at that point, they branch out the search to go to a place where he liked to go fishing. Okay. They're like, let's like find out all the places that are familiar to him. And this was a place that friend said was a favorite fishing spot of his. However, the water was rather deep at that spot. But they went and searched there. And on January 2nd, they found Melissa's body, which somebody said, I think it was one of her loved ones said what was really sick about it was that maybe he did it just because he was familiar with the place. But there's also the possibility that he wanted to go out and go fishing there and know that she was down there because he had waited down her body. I think they found her via sonar and they had to pull her up. So she was no longer in the garbage can. It's very possible that that garbage can that they had found had drifted down the creek. And she had essentially, she was, I think, in her underwear. She was basically almost nude. She had been discarded and weighted down to the bottom of the river. They said that the water had been very cold that time of year. It was unseasonably cold. I guess it's seasonably cold. It's ungeographically location-wise yeah. cold <laughs> for this area. And that she was very well preserved. So it looked like she'd only been in the water for a matter of hours rather than over a week. They were able to identify her by her tattoos, one of which read Matt, the name of her husband, her children's father, and tragically, her murderer. So sad. An autopsy was conducted, and there was evidence of both strangulation and multiple instances of blunt force trauma. It is possible that either of those things killed her. They believe it was the strangulation most likely, but it was hard to make a definitive call. So they said that the cause of death was homicidal violence. Now, she had been in the water for over a week, and that made it impossible to tell if she had been sexually assaulted. Okay. As far as finding any sort of fluids or anything. But the investigator on Homicide for the Holidays believed that she had been. And you can tell with this guy talking about it that he's uncomfortable talking about it. It's really? clear that he has a lot of respect for victims and he's trying to respectfully describe why he believes she was sexually assaulted. It's just something very hard to talk about because no one wants to think about this. He said that there was evidence of bleach chemical burns to her chest, which I'm guessing was like her breasts area, as well as kind of like the upper thigh and crotch-ish area. And so it was his belief that he had sexually assaulted Melissa either before or after killing her and that he had used the bleach to try to remove his DNA or any evidence that Got of it. any bodily fluids. So the theory that the investigators put together is that Melissa may have actually gone to the apartment to use the bathroom or maybe he was trying to lure her to the apartment I don't think necessarily to kill her, but to maybe, again, another attempt to get her back. They believe that maybe she went to use the bathroom or maybe he somehow forcibly got her phone. And on her phone, she had pictures of her positive pregnancy test. Got it. 
There was also surveillance footage found from Christmas Day. So on Christmas Day, they had gone to her family's Christmas, and they had also gone to Jason's Godfather's celebration, it sounded like, where they brought presents. And so they have these these like security footage videos of her at Jason's family's celebration. And even though she's tiny and she's not really showing yet because she's only two months, she's holding her stomach in that way that pregnant women hold their stomachs. Yeah. And like rubbing it and touching it. And also she's already had four children. So I think, at least for me, when I had my second, I showed a lot faster. Yeah. yeah. So she could have had pictures of her belly on the phone. The one thing they know for sure is that there were pictures of, because I don't believe they recovered her phone. So it was just like things that she had actually sent her friends. Yeah. They believe at that point he saw evidence of her pregnancy and nobody believes that she was actually still sexually active with Matthew really nobody believes that that is true they think that he was saying that because it was kind of this projection this fantasy that he had of her coming to him and wanting him and saying she's an awful wife and mother but she still loved him like that didn't sound like anything she would have ever done based on Everyone who was very close to her knew how happy she was to be out of this the situation. Yeah. And the only person who was saying that was Matthew. Yeah. Okay. So it wouldn't be one of those situations where he'd look at it, find out she was pregnant, and be like, oh my gosh, could this be mine? It would be a situation where he knew yeah. she was pregnant with another man's baby and this was it. This was it. She was going to really finally this time move on with her life with Jason. And they believe that that was what caused him to snap and attack Melissa. I would have to agree with that speculation because it certainly strikes me as a crime of passion without much forethought. Yeah. I mean, the really tragic thing about this is that their one and a half year old child was present in the home during this. I can't really dwell on too much because it's too horrible to think about. Yeah. The autopsy also showed that Melissa was indeed about two months pregnant. And according to True Crime Daily, it was definitely Jason's baby. Yeah. Those close to Melissa believe that, like I said, Matthew had lied about continuing to have that sexual relationship with her and that he still wished to be in a relationship with her. The police were getting ready to arrest Matthew when they got a very alarming tip. So this is tip number three coming in that is alarming about our friend Matthew over here. Not looking good. No. One of Matthew's friends alerted the authorities to the fact that Matthew had told him that he had a gun and that if the police tried to come and arrest him, he was going to commit suicide by cop. He said, I'm going to either point my gun at them or I'll just start shooting and they'll kill me and then that's how I want to go out. So these guys are like, great, that's that's fun for us to deal oh with. My Thank God. you so much. But also thanks for the tip. Thanks for the tip. So they have their best guys on SWAT planning how they're going to arrest him. He's staying at his parents' house at this point. And they were basically surrounding the house and figuring out how they were going to, like, break down the door and catch him by surprise when he walked out with his dad. And they essentially, like, went in, like, went to go get into their car to drive away to do something. And they were like, now's the time. And they just, there's a video of it. And they just, like, flatten both of them and immediately get them down. And thankfully, they were able to take him into custody without incident. Gosh, that's like so much to put on a cop, too. It's so intense. It's just so intense. That's why I was saying there's just so many heroes in this story, because this is January 2nd. These are people that have been involved in this case since the day after Christmas. 
These are people not home with their own families and who are literally putting their life on the line. And then they're going to have to, like, live with the fact that they, like, maybe had to kill. That they maybe had to kill somebody who was going out with that intention. It's really sad. It's very sad, but it's, it's a miracle that, thankfully, that did not come to pass. Yes. So in custody, Matthew totally dummies up. I think it was the True Crime Daily video has him, like, crying but not saying anything. So they're like, we know you did it. We have a recording of you talking about it. And do you want to say anything in your own defense, essentially? And he's like, no, I have nothing to say, but he's crying. Ultimately, the forensic techs were able to also find Matthew's prints in Melissa's car, the one that had been abandoned. And this was the car that she had bought with Jason after they were already broken up. There was no reason for his prints to be in that car. They were able to charge him with capital murder because she was pregnant. So it's two people in Texas. And that would potentially carry a death sentence or a death penalty. In the end, Matthew pleaded guilty to murder. And the capital murder was taken away because he was afraid of the, the death penalty, of course, but also on the side of the state. They were a little worried about being able to prove that he definitively knew about the pregnancy. Okay. Because this is not on any of the recordings. He doesn't say, like, I killed her because she was pregnant with another man or anything. It would be a leap to prove that he actually really did know because she hadn't been telling a lot of people. So this was kind of a win-win plea deal here. Matthew was sentenced to 60 years in prison with first chance of parole in 30 years. So he will not be eligible until 2044. At that point, he'll be in his mid-50s. And that's just when he's eligible, which I would be surprised if he gets out at that time. Melissa's children are in the custody of Matthew's parents, which is always a really hard pill to swallow when the people who raised the murderer get custody of the children of the victim. And I'm not really sure of exactly how that went down or why maybe Melissa's family was unable to take care of all four of the children and this was a way to keep them together, which does happen as well. In any case, it was decided that this was the best option for the four girls. And <sighs> Melissa's mother, Sonia, says on the show that she sees them intermittently and as much as she can, like they come to her work and stuff like that. And I'm sure that as they get older and they become adults, they will find out for themselves everything they need to know about their mother and what happened to her very tragically. Now, it sounds like the family of Matthew, the Souders, are still very much standing by him. His father made a statement for the media essentially saying that he was proud of Matthew for taking responsibility and sparing everyone the agony of a trial. I don't think proud is the word you should be using in this situation. I feel like you could have said, I'm relieved. I am glad he's taking responsibility and now he's going to serve the time that he should be serving. Yeah. Something along those lines rather than like, I'm proud that he's doing this because it's just, there's nothing to be proud of in this situation. We obviously don't firsthand know what it's like to be a parent to someone adopted as well. I think there's a lot to navigate when you're raising another baby and who knows what their whole dynamic is. But yeah, I think that language probably wasn't the best choice of words. <laughs> no, for a guy who's a copy editor at a newspaper. Yeah. I think that rubbed people the wrong way for understandable reasons. But it definitely did seem 
Like they were at least very big hearted, these people. Yeah. So I hope that those children are being raised with the love that they deserve. Yeah. Wowza. So thank you for joining us for this very love murdery Christmas episode. Hopefully we'll see you in a couple days for our Patreon happy hour. (laughs) (laughs) In conclusion, even if you're innocent, the past tense thing is sketchy when somebody's just missing. Watch your language. This is why language counts. (laughs) Language does count. And you got to always respect and love the nosy neighbors. They're always going to help out, even if they're nosy. Heroes of the true crime podcast industry. And speaking of heroes, Tim Miller and AccuSearch, major hero. So many props. I think instead of my usual closing, I would like to say this holiday season, as Mr. Rogers would say, look for the helpers in your life, in the world, be a helper, and don't let anything define you in a way that prevents you from looking for the helpers and being a helper. So happy holidays, everyone. I love you, my helper. I love you, babe. Bye. (laughs) Bye.